Welcome back to Potterdies. Every Friday we bring you an ode to the odd. That's Meg. And that's Kale. And we're sisters here to bring you stories about odd events, weird history, bizarre tales, different perspectives, and unique places. And it is Halloween. Halloween. Our favorite holiday. We are a little excited and we're airing the episode a day early this week. Mm -hmm. So we are recording early and it will be released on Thursday instead of Friday. Because we have to. It's Halloween. It's we the best to. day of the year. We have to. It was supposed to be a mini episode. Our original plan was to do a really short Halloween episode as a bonus and a normal episode on Friday and that didn't really happen. My brain wanted to write a full episode about the origins of Halloween. We got too excited. There's just so much to talk about. How do you pick and choose? Right. So last week, we posed a question to answer today. Yes, we did. <clears throat> if you could dress up as anything, what would it be? Mm -hmm. Any cosplay, any costume? Mm -hmm. No did, limit. No limit. Did you want to go first? Because I know you had... Oh, I think, and I didn't give this enough thought, I might think of more over time because I get excited. Right now, I think it would be really fun to do a, like a solid Gamora. Yeah. With the dyed hair, like the green skin. I thought everything. about that. That would She's be a badass. fun one to do all out. Mm -hmm. I did not think that complicated. And, sorry. <clears throat> the first crossover that I could think of would be doing a Wednesday Adams Velma. Ooh. <laughs> so, I don't know. I was envisioning, like... The Wednesday black braids and then a white collar over Velma's orange sweater. Mm -hmm. And then maybe red skirt black socks or whatever. Maybe black shoes. I'm not quite sure. I dig it. Kind of just making it up on the spot. I just really love crossovers of all kind. Yeah, they're fun. It's whenever we were at a convention and you came across somebody that was cosplaying as one or recognized a reference on something we were selling at the table. It's always so fun to meet because the chances of somebody else liking two obscure things together always seems... Yeah, that's true. ...small. Mm. Does it sound like a bonfire? It does, to me. I wonder if it sounds like a bonfire to everybody else. We have a candle burning. We should probably explain that. Oh, well. So, the origin <clears throat> of Halloween. Yeah. Is that where we're starting? Yep, we're going to talk about the origin of Halloween, the origin of trick-or-treating, Halloween candy, haunted houses. Really, I, I meant to pick three, which is our standard, and uh, they just, they worked so well together. And we gotta, it's Halloween. We gotta. It's Halloween, and this is the point where if this was a visual... 
thing, um, we would have the dancing pumpkin head Absolutely. gif playing. Mm-hmm. But instead, I'm going to tell you about the origins of Halloween. So as the summer grows to an end and the leaves change and fall, the harvest is nearly finished and everyone is preparing for the dark winter ahead. Over 2,000 years ago in what is now modern-day Ireland, Scotland, the UK, and some of Northern Europe, the Celts would hold their annual Samhain festival every October 31st. It is the one day a year where the veil between the living and the dead is thin enough that the ghosts of the deceased can return to Earth. This would be their final day of not just the summer, but their year. On the night of All Hallows' Eve, massive bonfires were lit. Offerings were left for pranksters and mischievous spirits. Sacrifices were made to deities, mostly in the form of crops and some animals, in exchange for protection. People wore costumes of animal hides and heads. They danced around the fire and told predictions of the future. Some records indicate that the costumes were done to confuse the spirits by not revealing their identity, while some lore suggests that masquerading as an animal got them closer to the supernatural aspect of it. Mm. I didn't see that one as often, but I can kind of understand the, the thought behind it. So when the ritual is completed, torches would be lit from the large shared bonfire and taken to each home, and they would light the individual hearth fires, taking, you know, a piece of the symbolic fire. And then they they believed that it would protect the residents in that home during the cold and dark year to come. In the first century CE, the Roman Empire would conquer much of the Celtic territory, They would go on to rule the area for 400 years, and in that time, the celebration of Halloween started to change. There are two main changes that the Romans are noted for. First is the creation of Feralia, which I am most likely mispronouncing, which was a day dedicated to mourning the passing of the dead. And the second is a holiday dedicated to Pomona. As the Roman goddess of fruit and trees, she was honored through agriculture and fruit, specifically apples. Bobbing for apples, anyone? Mm. Which is really big here in New York because our largest export is apples. And I believe the last time we looked at it, the largest um, origin of the orders for the apples is Japan. Really? Yeah. Um, they're delicacies there. Wow. It, I, I thought that was really interesting because they're just... <laughs> Well, last week was if it fits, it sits, and this week it's if it if it finds something shiny, it plays with it. <laughs> I've never bobbed for apples, have you? Um, <clears throat> no. Um, I have a thing about the the backwash that comes from people dunking their heads in a communal tub of water. Um, like, it's gross enough trying to take a sip of your drink after a kid's gotten to it. Like, I just consider bobbing for apples a larger version of that. Oh, I never thought of it like You're that. welcome. <laughs> so both of these Roman editions would be incorporated into the celebration of Samhain. As the Catholic Church gained power and Christianity gained momentum, the pagan practices began to disappear. They were often replaced with Christian narrative, but were otherwise mostly unchanged. 
which allowed the church to capitalize on the popularity of these celebrations and the momentum already attached to the growing church. In the years to come, the church would successfully overshadow and replace the historical roots of Samhain. In 1609 CE, Common Era, the Pope declared the creation of a new holiday, All Saints Day. It would be dedicated to the saints and martyrs of the Christian religion. A few popes after that, the celebration was expanded and moved and celebrated on November 1st. This celebration was also referred to as All Hallows and All Hallowmas, which is from Middle English, making the night before that what was once Samhain All Hallows Eve. I'm sorry, I'm so amused by the cat right now. So a few popes after that, in 1000 CE, was the creation of a second new holiday, All Souls Day. Both sound awesome. They do. This holiday was held on November 2nd as a day to honor the dead. This holiday would be celebrated like Samhain was, but with bonfires and costumes. Instead of animal pelts and heads, there were church-related costumes and parades. Good. Saints, angels, devils, demons, it was all symbolic characters from church. Yeah, which, anything to not wear a dead animal on your body, like, no. Yeah. So, these offerings were left to wandering spirits turned into an act of charity for the poor, and the mischief, once attributed to ghosts and spirits, was now associated with the saints. During the All Souls Day festivities, the poor and beggars would be given pastries, soul cakes, so cool sounding, in exchange for prayers for their deceased relatives. This practice, known at the time as going a soul lane, would be mimicked later in history and taken up by children going around the neighborhood for treats. I want to go a soul lane. That sounds so It fun. sounds like the... That would be... Okay, trademark it. That would be like the perfect name for like a local ghost tour company that does like a walking tour of the town and oh. talks about stuff like that. But it just sounds so fun. It does. As time passed, the mischief and antics once associated with the spirits and celebrations started to come back. Costumes are no longer limited to those with religious affiliation, like angels and demons. Yay. By the Middle Ages, we see a second origin story of trick-or-treating with the practice of mumming. Those wearing costumes would parade or perform in exchange for food or drink. So slowly, our holiday starts to take shape. Hooray! It isn't until we fast forward to colonial era that we start to see the emergence of American Halloween traditions as we know them today. Due to the religious influence at the time, Halloween celebrations were few and far between, but they did happen. After the Middle Ages came the Reformation, which led to the formation of the Protestant branch of organized religion. It's this religion that held control of the beliefs and practices of many residents in New England, especially the northern colonies. Those closer to the South, like Maryland. <laughs> Which is such a joke. Sorry. Maryland, Maryland is yeah. not in the South. <laughs> they were farther from the grip of the church and had more freedom and expression and celebration. Public events called play parties, just sounds weird, were created and held to celebrate the bounty of harvest and the changing of seasons. With these parties came the reemergence of the traditions of telling ghost stories, predicting fortunes, and dancing. Yay! Sounds like a good time. So all the different ethnicities and cultures were pivotal to the establishment of our country's modern Halloween celebrations. Two major waves of immigration took place. 
one during the first half of the 1800s and the second from the 1800s to 1920s. It was the latter which saw the influx of millions of Irish fleeing their homeland and the ongoing potato famine. These immigrants brought with them traditions and customs that were a major influence on how America would celebrate. In Ireland and Scotland, people who dressed up would walk around neighborhoods performing a trick for a treat. Kids would sing, dance, tell jokes, and perform in exchange for a treat, which was most often coins or nuts. With practices like these, Halloween celebrations became more community-oriented and less about the supernatural. The holiday focused on food, games, and parades, and in doing so, it shook off the traces of religion and superstition. Yes. So it's kind of like the the birth of modern-day Halloween, finally. Absolutely. And it's interesting to note that, I mean, there's a lot of uh, immigration going on at the time. There's a lot of racism going on, a lot of foreign bashing. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, just sometimes I just struggle to put into words some of these kind of things. And I noticed during the research that it was mentioned a lot that the Irish and sometimes the Scottish were really known for playing pranks. And it was something that they did in their home country. And it was something they brought with them when they came to the United States. Oh, really? Yeah. And I, I can't help but wonder if I don't think that they would be the cause of it. I think they were just a good scapegoat. Right. You know, taking into mind again the, the time that this was happening. Yeah, that's true. So, from here on out, the remainder of the history of Halloween is a pretty quick tale. Celebrations became secular, that is, without spiritual or religious aspects, and they continued to be community-based. By the end of the 1920s, young people seemed to favor tricks instead of treats. Rowdy, bored kids pulled destructive pranks. Communities and parents made efforts to rein in the mischief, but with the Great Depression right around the corner, they would make little progress. By the 1930s, vandalism and violence on Halloween had become the norm. The issue became so common and widespread that cities across the country seriously considered banning Halloween. Ultimately, apparently, they realized that banning it might not succeed, but they might be able to bribe the population. So that's what we're seeing here is we're seeing we're trying to trade these rambunctious people by giving them something else to do. And that's where the rest will pick back up in the history. So here are some examples of the pranks that they used to pull. They would put livestock and wagons on the roof of a farmer's barn. I read an account about how they would pull all of the vegetables out of a garden and then just leave them there. Um, They would take gates out of livestock fences, letting the livestock out of their pens. They would remove manhole covers and they would deflate tires. So a lot of it was just stupid shit it's just stupid shit that like bored teenagers in high school might do like you know over spring break or something but soon the pranks got out of hand an innocent mischief turned into dangerous tricks with all too real consequences property was damaged fires were started and people were injured it's surprising that this never became a legal matter instead communities buckled down and banded together to combat the problem 
So it's the Great Depression right now that we're talking about. And it's a really, really dark time in our history. If you can't remember much about it from when, the last time you took history class. But despite the atmosphere, despite the lack of resources available, and despite the lack of money people had, they created what would go on to become the widespread practice of trick-or-treating. Oh, and haunted houses, too. Never so, would have guessed So that. they managed to do all of this. So like I've mentioned, the communities came together, and what they did was they hosted house-to-house parties, is what they called it for teens and kids. And each home in that route that they would visit contributed something to the experience. So some houses would give out treats. They would give out the coins and nuts, sometimes small mm-hmm. toys. Um, some might give out simple costumes for people. I read about people giving away soot and using it like a an original kind of face paint to like smudge your face for part oh, of your okay. costume. And then some of them even set up indoor spooky walkthroughs in their basement. And these early versions of the haunted basement setups were the very basic design, were very basic in design and execution, but they served their purpose really well, and they helped offer extra opportunities to keep kids engaged and busy. Which was important, especially during such a dark time. Yeah, it, it really was. I mean, it's something that's all that always should be important, but, mm-hmm. you know, the violence and the pranks, it just reached a tipping point. So these haunted houses became so popular that they started publishing pamphlets (laughs) that they distributed to homeowners and parents. And in one specific instance, in 1937, a party pamphlet describes a DIY process for parents to create what they called trails of terror of their own, so in their own houses. And here's what they recommended. An outside entrance leads to a rendezvous with ghosts and witches in the cellar or attic. Hang old fur, strips of raw liver on walls where one feels his way to dark steps. Weird moans and howls come from dark corners. Damp sponges and hairnets hung from the ceiling touching his face. Doorways are blockaded so that guests must crawl through a dark tunnel. And at the end, he hears a plaintive meow and sees a black cardboard cat outlined in luminous paint all of like raw liver attached to a wall where you would have to touch it when you're looking for a doorway how does that lead to a cardboard cat cut out and not like something like leather face like right oh my god that's i never would have thought of any of that. Damn, it's, 1937. It's so innocent, but so disgusting at the same time. <laughs> I know, I it's so it. surprising. So obviously the popularity of haunted houses would continue, and so would the popularity of trick-or-treating and candy. It proved that candy was an inexpensive way for people to celebrate, and the celebrations helped keep kids busy, busy and out of trouble. And so trick-or-treating became a yearly tradition. That is, until 1939 when World War II began. It might not seem like the war has any connection to trick-or-treating late. Nope. Trick-or-treating. But surprisingly enough, it does. Two things, in fact. First, one of the foods that was rationed at the time was sugar. Of course. And without sugar, you can't have candy. 
Dark times, indeed. Dark, <laughs> yeah. And second, many of the youth at the time made vows to honor the soldiers heading to war by agreeing not to participate in Halloween vandalism. Like, good on them. Which I thought was really interesting. I did not expect that at all. I'm not sure how effective it was or how many people followed through, but the intention was there. And then the war came to an end in 1945. Candy eventually went back into production and the celebrations resumed. The 1950s, though, experienced a population explosion with the birth of the baby boomer generation. This newer, larger family would be the catalyst for the transition of public Halloween celebrations to individual at-home traditions. More kids called for larger houses and suburban developments sprung up across the country. They offered homes for growing families at a more affordable cost by being located outside of the city. It just so happened that the suburbs, by design, offered the perfect environment for the revival of trick-or-treating. And now we have cookie-cutter neighborhoods everywhere. Yep. Yay. Little boxes. <laughs> Interestingly enough, we don't know where the term trick-or-treating came from or when it started. What we do know, though, is that the practice was referenced in text in a Peanuts comic in 1951, and again in a Disney cartoon in 1952. Yeah, but involved Donald and his nephews, Huey, Louie, and Dewey. Hmm. Didn't even write that one down. Damn. Nice memory. In less than 100 years, trick-or-treaters went from being offered cookies and cakes and coins to candy. Today... The individually wrapped and mass-produced chocolates and treats have become the standard offering, bringing in $6 billion a year in Halloween candy sales alone. It technically makes Halloween the second most commercialized holiday in the United States, but I call bullcrap on the statistic because it's just candy. Right. I don't think it has the same intent, so I don't think they can really be compared, but that's just my, no, just, I agree with my two cents. So $6 billion a year. Many of the confectionery companies we're familiar with today were created in the same time frame that modern trick-or-treating was practiced. And here's a short timeline of some of the most well-known chocolates. I just love this so much. That like our favorite candy bars from Halloween and trick-or-treating are because of Halloween and trick-or-treating. It just makes it so much better. It really, it may, it's like a love story. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. So, 1900, Hershey's Milk Chocolate Bar. Mm -hmm. The OG. 1907, Hershey's Kisses. Do you know why they're called Kisses? No, I don't. It's because the motion that the machine makes when it touches the conveyor belt to press out the kiss, it kisses the conveyor belt and lifts up. I had no idea. Yeah. Huh. You're welcome. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Back to your regular scheduled program. 1923, Milky Way. Mm. Mm, indeed. My favorite, 1928, Peanut Butter Cups. 1930, Snickers Bar, close second. 1932, Three Musketeers. 1935, Chocolate Crisp, which was later renamed Kit mm, Kat. Love Kit Kats. Same. And anybody who just bites into a Kit Kat is a monster. I... I just had this conversation with my family not that long ago, really? and I say the exact same thing about Nutter Butters. Agreed. That my children, they eat, no, they eat them no. bite by bite, and they bite through all the layers, and I had, like, 
a little bit of a panic attack watching it because it's wrong. It's like you're just biting into a cheese stick. I'm like, no. Only if it's cheddar you can do that. If it's mozzarella, you have to pull it. That's the law. You have to pull it into strips. It's the law. It's the law. The law of cheese. So chocolate, okay. And at some point in the 1930s, we can't forget Mars Bar and Nestle Crunch Bar. Mm-hmm. Love me some Crunch Bars. And although it's not chocolate, before all those famous candy bars is the super controversial candy corn, which was created in the 1880s. Which seems like it should be the least controversial thing in the whole fucking world. Right. But, like, everyone has an opinion on it. You love it or you hate it, and I swear there's, like, no in-between. I can't remember what it even tastes like. I haven't had it in so long. I... Have you seen the picture of why it's called candy corn yes because they are like individual kernels from a corn on the cob yeah when you stack them it Mm -hmm. makes corn it's crazy yeah blew my mind the first time while trick-or-treating is an obvious focal point of modern halloween we still have some other awesome traditions earlier we mentioned pomona Mm -hmm. is that what it was yeah and bobbing for apples we've talked about Haunted house origins, but there's one more we want to talk about. Imagine Halloween without grim, grinning jack-o'-lanterns. It's hard to picture, like... Haunted mansion in there? Eh? Yeah. (laughs) You can't picture Halloween without them. You can't. Pumpkins have always been part of Halloween. Or have they? Dun-dun-dun. In order for us to tell you the history of jack-o'-lanterns, first we have to dive into some old Irish folklore. So, Meg, how does a legend go? It goes something like this. Stingy Jack and the devil go into a bar. No, really, that's how the joke starts. So somehow Jack convinced the devil to have a drink with him. Stingy Jack being, well, stingy, didn't want to pay for his drink. He convinced the devil to turn into a coin that could be used to pay the bill. Unsurprisingly, instead of using the coin, Jack decided to keep it. He stored it in his pocket along with a silver cross, which locked the devil in the coin form until Jack decided to release him. When Jack eventually decided to release the devil, the devil agreed to leave Jack alone for the period of one year, and if Jack died during this year, the devil would not take his soul. The year came and went, and once the devil reappeared, Jack managed to trick him yet again. I really don't understand how. This time, he asked the devil to climb a tree and get him a piece of fruit. But while the devil was in the tree, Jack carved a cross in the tree, which meant that the devil couldn't get down. This time, Jack bargained for 10 years without interruption from the devil, and again, if he died during that time period, the devil would not take his soul. But then Jack died. I'm not sure why or how, but anyway... Heaven did not want his devious soul, and but her about being tricked twice, the devil refused him entrance to hell. So instead, the devil sent Jack on his way into the dark night with nothing but a burning coal inside a hollowed-out turnip for light. Legend has it that he's been wandering the earth ever since. The Irish referred to this figure as Jack of the Lantern, which was eventually shortened to Jack-o'-lantern. In response to this legend, people in Ireland and Scotland would carve potatoes and turnips and place them near windows and entrances to ward off evil spirits. When many of these families fled the potato famine and immigrated to the United States, 
they brought this tradition with them. However, unlike in Ireland, we had squash aplenty, and as we now know, they make the best jack-of-the-lanterns. Also, side note, if you have not seen a carved turnip, Google it, because it's crazy, and I, I don't know. The first time I saw it, I was so confused, because it's I didn't a, know it was a thing. It's a vegan shrunken head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're crazy. Yeah, they are. So today, we know, we carve pumpkins for fun. We paint them, we bedazzle them, we put spikes on them. There are artists out there who legit turn them into pieces of artwork. Yeah. And then you have other people who make a living by shooting them out of cannons and catapults because it's awesome seeing them explode. So over time, obviously, the legend of Stingy Jack has disappeared and all that remains is the tradition of carving pumpkins. We've lost the meaning behind many Halloween legends and traditions, like black cats. To this day, people are still superstitious over black cats. But why? Originally, it was thought that black cats were the familiars of witches, and it was bad luck to cross paths with one. Much to the chagrin of every person who's ever wanted to actually have a Patronus for real, familiars don't exist, so why are we still scared of black cats? Isn't it even a thing still that they, like, warn you if you have one to keep it inside on Halloween? Yes. It's um, so messed up. It's a common enough problem that animal shelters um, will not adopt out black cats oh around gosh. Halloween or around Friday the 13th. It makes me sad. It makes me really sad, too. I love all the kitty cats. I love black cats. They just, mm -hmm. they're, I don't know, a little extra special somehow. Mm -hmm. Black cats were... If somebody asked me to make a list of common superstitions today, yeah, black cats would be at the top. Black cats would be at the top. There's also breaking mirrors, spilling mm -hmm. salt, walking under a ladder. Yeah. Never understood that one. Opening an umbrella inside, which doesn't even yeah. really have a consequence. Right. I don't know. Yeah. Our very first episode, A Little Stitches, goes into descriptions of many superstitions and their origins. Check it out if you're interested in this stuff. It's super intriguing. Yeah. A lot of it's lost knowledge, but a lot of it's really just interesting to know. Mm -hmm. We've touched base on a lot of the well-known superstitions associated with Halloween. Can you name any of the lesser-known ones? Before doing research, we wouldn't have been able to answer that. But since then, we found some interesting stories. Part of what makes them interesting is that many of the forgotten rituals were intended for women seeking answers and guidance with matchmaking and finding husbands. I never in my life would have guessed. If you said, what do you think is something that they did at Halloween that isn't practiced anymore, never in a million years would I have said anything about marriage or yeah, love and matchmaking. It's almost disappointing. In Ireland, for example, a ring might be hidden in a dinner by a matchmaker in hopes that it would spur love in whoever discovered the ring. We can't help but wonder how often the rings were swallowed or choked on. You, you see it in, like, rom-coms where the dude yeah. proposes to the chick by putting the ring in the champagne flute and then she chokes on it or swallows it. Mm -hmm. There's, there's got to be statistics out there of how often that happens. Definitely. Okay, so this one is entertaining. Now we're in Scotland where there is a practice to determine the name of a girl's future husband. They start by taking one hazelnut for each potential suitor. Then they give each hazelnut one of the men's names. The nuts are then tossed into the fire and observed. 
whichever hazelnut turned to ash instead of poppy. The name associated with that hazelnut was the name of her future suitor. And finally, this next one is might be more well-known than those that we mentioned before. It's bringing to mind a vague reference to a movie, but haven't had any luck I haven't it. been able to remember what it is. In this specific ritual, young ladies would peel an apple, toss the peel over her shoulder, and then interpret the peel. If the peel formed a letter, that was the initial of her future spouse. I'm not sure if we mentioned it in the superstition episode, but did we talk about the snails on a plate? I don't think so, no. It was, it was another superstition that you could take a plate, put flour on it, and then put snails on it overnight. And in the morning, you would come down and you would interpret the designs that their slime drew in the flour. And you were supposed to look for letters to be able to see. Would they stay on the plate or would they just be like loose in your house? I, w- I don't know, actually. They pr- pro- I mean, it depends on how fast, they, how, like how, how fast they move. I don't yeah, know. That's true. So, yeah, the apple peel. And there you have it. A few origin stories, some folklore, and a whole bunch of examples showing how badass Halloween is at adapting to the times. This year and every year, stay safe. Be creative, have fun, and remember, costumes, not cultures. Mm-hmm. You can catch us next Friday for our next episode. We're taking a detour around the other creepy and dark episodes that we have planned for the future. And instead, next week, we'll be talking about something many of you consider generally fun, for whatever reason, roller coasters. Hell yeah. So join us as we look at the history of roller coasters and delve into Coney Island. And just because, we have a short story to share about a petting zoo where children could ride alligators. And our final topic of the next episode will be the story of Dr. Martin Corney, who ran a sideshow act that would forever change the care of NICU babies. Not where you guys thought that was going. No, it wasn't. But as a NICU mom, it's a story close to my heart, and I really do enjoy sharing it. So I'm looking forward to talking about it next week. In the meantime, if you have topics to suggest or stories you'd like to hear, please email us. We can be reached at podities at anodetotheodd.com. And you can also find us on social media. Instagram at anodetotheodd. Twitter at podities underscore. And join us on Patreon in our Patreon group called The Potatorium. We have stuff on there. Yep. For as little as a dollar a month, you get access to our Patreon account where you'll get extra videos. Mm -hmm. There's been one extra fact video. We've done one or two bloopers. We have a couple more bloopers to post. Yep, we sure do. Um, And some other short stories that we'll be recording, you know, 5, 10, 15 minutes Mm -hmm. that will be just dropped into the Patreon group randomly as an extra thank you for listening and supporting us. Yes. So we are airing our episode early. This week, Podities episode 8 will be airing on Thursday instead of Friday. So we will be back in one week and one day. And happy Halloween. Happy Halloween again. Be safe. Podities is research written and presented by Meg McGibbon and Callie Ayers. Until next time, seek out the strange and embrace the unusual.